Hello and welcome to episode 12 of God's Own Scale podcast, your 6mm and smaller, occasionally, dedicated podcast for all things wargaming. I'm Sean Clark, your host. Thank you for joining me today. I hope you're well. I'm just recovering from a bout of what has been described as norovirus, not coronavirus, thankfully. Uh, but norovirus, where I've been laid low for four or five days, which has just put me behind schedule a touch, but nothing um, too untoward. And I'm back in the editing seat and back with what I think is another great episode for you with Mark Backhouse, who I'm sure many of you will be aware of through his work with Wargame Soldier and Strategy magazine and in particular his work uh, in 2mm yes not 6mm but 2mm he does uh, game in 6mm but has come to some prominence due to uh, some of the wonderful things he's done in that even smaller scale slight change uh, in the format for the show that I'm just going to try I'm going to have a little bit of a new section prior to the interview and then afterwards will be my hobby update when i talk about say news it, it's not going to be reporting news it's just going to be me commenting on a couple of things that i've noticed a couple of things of note um i'm sure you're all aware partisan or the other partisan in october has just been cancelled which is a great shame but entirely understandable i think we're coming to the realization that this year is going to be a pretty much a washout for traditional war game shows in the sense that we've known them over the last few years um, government guidelines are changing on a nearly daily basis really but the thought of nearly a thousand people together in one room uh, war gaming um, the hustle and bustle of bring and buys standing at stalls talking to uh, the honest traders there seems a little way off yet Un- unfortunately i'm as desperate as anybody to get back uh, to the show scene in fact i was watching a video by a, a recommended youtube channel called boots on the table check him out um, i forget the guy's name but it's, it's a great youtube channel um, based on historical wargaming and he did a walkthrough of colors uh, 2019 from last year and I had quite a nostalgic feeling uh, looking at it uh, watching the hustle and the bustle of uh, the games the traders the bring and buy um, and it's made me realize just how much I've missed it I've, I've just had the one show this year which was Allenwell which was just prior to lockdown and there's definitely some influence on the attendance at that show let's keep safe and uh, hope that next year things do abate and we can return to some sort of normality but obviously health safety welfare of everybody is the prime concern and let's face it it doesn't stop us spending um so long 
as your honest trader is able to keep up with demand. And uh, the second point of that is, uh, as we know, Bacchus Miniatures, Peter Berry has been on the show a couple of times, uh, a favoured 6mm producer of mine, has announced that the shopping cart should be open again at some point in early August. So as I record this, it's the 26th of July. So maybe another week or so and the announcement will go out. Now I anticipate, as happened last time, it'll be open for around 24 hours before the order book is at capacity. So if you do have something that you're wanting to buy from Peter, make sure you get it in as early as possible because I would say that within 24 hours it'll be closed again. Um, I don't know what the situation is uh, with staffing at Bacchus and how close they are to returning to any sort of normality, but I think we have to accept at the moment, as things stand, that this 24-hour window, ordering window, uh, is going to be the model for the short term. I don't think it'll be a long-term thing. I'm fairly sure Peter will be getting back on his feet and things will be returning to some normality in the not-too-distant future. But if we're aware of it, then we know when to order, get that uh, list done. I've certainly got one which I'll talk about at the end of the show, which is ready to go. Um, I'm looking forward to that. And like most wargamers, I've got plenty of stuff to paint. So... Yes, a little bit of an inconvenience if, if that inspiration hits at one o'clock in the morning and you're desperate to get yourself a whole seven years war collection uh, to fight uh, the battles of Frederick the Great and you can't get them just at this moment. Well, I'm sure if you look in the drawers or the cabinets or cupboards or boxes that you've got in your room or wherever it is that you stock your wargaming stockpile, I'm sure you've got something that will just keep you ticking over until such time as that window opens again. I know that Peter disclosed he'd had quite a he'd had a couple of quite large orders, so people are obviously taking advantage of the fact that the shopping cart is reopening and and throwing in large orders to keep them uh, in six mil goodness for the time being. So look out for that. There may be another show prior to the opening of the shopping cart, but I can't guarantee it. So, 26th of July, um, I'm recording this. It will go out. The show will be out tonight. So, you may have a week in which to make that order, make your decision, and get that order sorted. Uh, finally, uh, I've seen across the Twitters, Jasper Orthoys asking for questions that we think should go into the annual Great War Games survey conducted by War Games Soldier and Strategy. If you're on Twitter, then I suggest get over there and if you've got a contribution to make, if you've got an idea about what sort of questions this year's survey should be asking, then get over there and uh, make your contribution. This year has been probably the most unusual year in our lifetime so maybe the questions of this year's survey should reflect that 
So just go over and have a look. And obviously, obviously, and especially bearing in mind who you're about to listen to, check out War Games Soldier and Strategy magazine. It's my favourite magazine. We are very lucky that we've got three magazines here in the UK that are great. Uh, they each serve their own purpose and um, do a great job of promoting the hobby. Uh, WSS is, is just the one that I've always turned to just because of the format really and I, I do talk about that a little bit in the interview with Mark. Okay, so um, that's enough from me. I will be back at the end of the show just to give you a little bit of a hobby update to say where I am with my own little projects but for now let's talk about Episode twelve. <laughs> it's eleven or twelve. Yeah, I think I've I've got one to send out with Henry. Uh, with tomorrow. Henry eleven, I think. Um, so you're uh, you're, you're the round dozen, mate. Um, the dirty dozen, indeed. The dirty dozen. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, welcome uh, to God's Own Scale podcast. And uh, myself and my guest have just worked out. We think we're episode twelve. The dirty dozen, uh, and and he's referred to himself in that in that manner. But I'll let him introduce himself now. So, uh, Mr. Mark Backhouse, welcome to uh, the podcast. Oh, thanks very much, Sean. Thanks for inviting me on. That's all right. You're, you're I, I keep talking about a hit list I've got of um, potential guests. Um, it's not a hit list as in you're going to get a red dot on your forehead and taken out at three miles. It's a hit list of renowned names and faces throughout this hobby and, and you're one of them well it's it's funny that you might say that um i think my name is quite well known but in fact i'm i'm quite um inconspicuous actually i can walk quite happily around war game shows and nobody knows who on earth i am most of the time uh, and i only sometimes get recognized if i'm wearing a wss t-shirt with star frick on the back right but often right. that just means that members of the public walk up to me and ask me where their toilets are and that kind of thing so um, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm I'm fortunate in that my my face is largely hidden. I can get away with looking around the show properly without being um, harassed all the time by people asking me about articles all the time, which is quite good, really. You, you've managed to keep your anonymity. Well, you know, not not, not deliberately so, you know, but um, it's just it's, it's just that's the bit. It's, let's face it, war gaming celebrity is about sort of a, a list celebrity, anyway, isn't it? Really, in the real world. So, um, but I'll, I'll take the fame. I don't mind. I'll roll with it a little bit short. That's good. <laughs> right well um I, I, it's great to have you on on the podcast mate because uh your name is one that i've been following for some time with not not only with some of the smaller scale work that you do but the articles that you've had published uh the la you run a lardy day i think don't you down yeah south. that's right yeah i've got um we've run that now for two years yeah come and have a go if you think you're large enough excellent um, yeah <laughs> Uh, and uh, I've, in fact, just before uh, dialing into the call, I was refreshing my memory of the Siege of Portsmouth mm. game. It was Portsmouth, wasn't it? It was Portsmouth, yeah, yeah. I'd suddenly got Plymouth in my head for some reason, but then I thought, no, no, we've just discussed the post of Portsmouth. <laughs> I knew it began with a P and it was on the south coast. <laughs> <laughs> so, mate, thanks thanks very much for taking up uh, your evening to, to talk to me on episode 12 of God's Own Scale podcast. As I generally do, um, 
uh, we'll go through a bit of a hobby bio uh, with you, if, if that's okay, and then just move on to the more serious matters of the small scales and the big things that we can do with them. So uh, just for anybody that hasn't heard of you, and if they haven't heard of you, I want to know why they haven't heard of you, because they won't have been reading Wargame Soldier and Strategy, but just give, uh, give us your, uh, a bit of a potty bio, if you would. Well, I suppose like most people, I was um, into gaming from a young age with airfix figures and that kind of thing. Um, I, I suppose I started off without any rules at all. I used about four or five with a big tub of airfix figures that my mum had brought from the local jumble sale. I think the week earlier, I just watched the 1970 um, Waterloo film on television. And I remember very distinctly setting up all the French uh, cavalry coming towards the British squares and that kind of thing. There, My mum looked on and said, how did you know they formed squares and that kind of thing? And I, I remember the film, obviously. Yeah. So um, I've always enjoyed playing with toy soldiers and that kind of thing. There. Although as a kid, I was never allowed guns or anything like that to play with. Um, my parents were, were always sort of a bit of CND and sort of a band of bond type people. So right. um, I suppose my form of rebellion there was to be interested in military history all the time. Um, and uh, I suppose I got into gaming then properly. A friend of mine had a few of the old of, uh, board war games in the early 80s. Um, I remember playing things like um, Cry Havoc and uh, War at Sea and things like that there. Probably aged about five or six or seven probably far too young really to play these games properly really and we used to play a lot of the old board games like escape from cold it's something like that there and then um in the 80s i suppose i got into collecting little uh lead figures a, a set of miniature ones and i've still got a bit of a passion for the old sort of old hammer figures from the 1980s and war and fantasy battle and that kind of thing and then in the 90s i got into playing uh, more napoleonic things um what was I playing there? Oh, Bruce Quarry's rules from out the library, I kind of guess, there in the early 90s. And then when all my friends were buying sensible magazines, I would spend my pocket money on War Games Illustrated or uh, miniature war games or whatever and, uh, and be reading up all the, the War Games rules and that. But I never really got to play games regularly against historical opponents very much in the early 90s. Um, at university, I did a little bit of historical gaming and then um, I did a history degree, by the way. Uh, and then after that, then I came back to uh, my home area around here on the south coast in Hampshire, and I joined up with a, a local club here. And that club was um, part of the remnants of um, Donald Featherstone's originals of 1960s uh, Southampton Club, which had divided into two different parts there. And, and I joined one one part of that there, which is sort of on the uh, the east side of Southampton. And uh, I've been gaming there ever since for the last 20 or so years. And um, the last, how many long now, 12 years or so, I've been writing for a War Games Soldier Strategy magazine, and uh, I've been helping out Guy there with that quite a bit. I became mates with Guy through playing uh, Warhammer Ancient Battles a few, about a decade and a bit ago, I organised a, a games day and playing his Siege and Conquest uh, rules and writing scenarios for that, and he came along, so we became mates after that, and uh, ever since I've been supplying him with articles, so I'm now his sort of go-to man, if there's ever something obscure that Jasper wants an article on. Um, normally, guy turns to me and says, "Mark, you you don't game this, do you?" But normally, I shrug my shoulders and say, "I, I don't, but I can." Um, so I go away and, and read up on it there, and then I invariably end up painting something for it and gaming it and writing an article for him. So um, uh, yeah, I think I've, I don't know quite how many articles I've written now. Henry was trying to get me to to talk about this last year on his blog. I, I was well over a hundred articles last year, so I, I must have done. 
I normally do a couple each each uh, edition of Wargame Software Strategy, so we've had another six uh, editions. So, yeah, I must have done about 115, 120 articles now for Wargame Software Strategy. Blimey. So quite a few there, a few thousand words there, yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's, that's interesting. I've just made a couple of notes there. It's, I think people of a certain generation follow a certain familiar route, don't mm-hmm. we, into yeah. this hobby. Um, I've talked about the grain of the hobby before. I think there's a, a bit of a pushback against that in certain quarters because there are younger people coming through into the hobby, but certainly people of a certain generation who... who I've got that fondness for water, the film Waterloo. <laughs> well, my, my, my son, my son now has enjoyed that. Quite, or my sons have enjoyed that quite a bit. My youngest son Brilliant. in particular likes all these sort of 70s war films like that there. Yeah. He went through an obsessed phase of watching Zulu Dawn on repeat at one point there, which was um, rather rather concerning probably for everybody else involved. But, but we loved it and then we were happy. So, um, you know, you've got to enjoy the old ones as well. Well, there's certainly a habit at Michael of been Stoke of... Um, quoting vast lines from the likes of Waterloo or Zulu or Zulu That's Dawn. Done, whatever. It's what <laughs> done, mate. Yeah, it's, it's part of the journey, isn't it? Um, and, and also that, that Bruce Quarry book, uh, that's, that's come up a, a few times lately in, in discussions either online or uh, on, on a couple of podcasts. Uh, I think you wrote a or somebody wrote. Yeah, I've written a blog about it. Yeah, yeah. There you go, yeah. A copy of it uh, by my friend Charlie Walker. Um, Yes. um, Because actually, when I was reading it, frankly, I wasn't about the fourth or fifth edition of it. This was in the early 90s, and the original was, what, 1977, or, you know, before I was even born, I think. Yeah. Uh, So I remember distinctly playing it and thinking, God, this set here is pretty archaic, pretty backwards. But in so many areas, it was fantastic, and the depth of all the detail, and the the, the, the battalion compositions, and the um the sort of the march speeds and things like that inside it. That just for somebody who had a lot of imagination, uh, really caught you know caught my brain on fire really. So I remember going away and designing an entire peninsula campaign based around this age, about thirteen, with massive maps of uh, Spain and uh, working out where all the troops were and all the different divisions and how big they were. I mean, I never painted all the stuff for it. You know, but it, is, it obviously really captured my imagination there, really sparked it off a lot to want to go and game some more. Um, so it's a fantastic book there and, and well worth getting if you haven't picked it up there. So oh, thank yeah. you, Charlie, for sending that down there and um, rekindling my love of all things quarry, really. I think the rocks inside it are turgidly slow and I wouldn't really recommend playing them through, but um, I'm, uh, fantastic. I'm, I'm not sure I ever played them. I, I had it from a, quite an early age um, and ironically used uh because now this is a six mile podcast albeit i've i've gained in most scales i used uh, the irregular miniatures blocks mm-hmm. uh, six mil blocks um as my sort of foundation in in napoleonics but used a set of rules called to the sound of the guns i don't know if you yeah. ever saw that by tabletop games which it was the only set of Napoleonic rules I ever knew about, other than what I'd read in Quarry. And to be frank, I didn't understand what was going on. <laughs> I'm not sure uh, we did really, but no. Uh, but to sound, the sound of the guns was um, that that those one of those classic sets of rules where there's tables of modifiers, and uh, I think it was a one to twenty uh, figure scale, and you, you might kill sixteen <laughs> twentieths of a figure. And you have to make note of that. Yeah, that yeah. Of does numeracy the world of good as a teenager? Actually, <laughs> yeah. um, but but I think similar to yourself, 
the destiny is set, isn't it, at that age? If if you're dra- drawing big maps of Spain and and designing campaigns at thirteen, your destiny for your life is yeah, a little bit, a little bit that way. I mean, I've dabbled with a few other sort of uh, history, military things. I did quite a lot of reenactment in, in my teenage years. I did a lot of World War Two reenactment stuff, um, and uh, in fact, I was invited to be an extra in Saving Private Ryan actually wow. just before I went off to university. And like an absolute fool, I turned it down to then go on holiday with the love of my life who. Dump me the next year or something anyway. But, you know, as he says, but my best friend at the time there walked past the camera and had about four seconds of airtime on it there. And uh, wow. I was always a bit disappointed afterwards. I didn't I didn't get involved in that. And then that at university, I did um, a lot of Dark Age reenactment stuff as well. So uh, I was reminiscing on, on Twitter about that the other day, actually. And, um, yeah, it was quite quite seriously into uh, being a Norman knight for quite some time and going out and clobbering people around the country, which was quite good fun. Um, but um, I suddenly realised well. I was mortal. Pardon me, sorry? Did you have the horse as well? No, I never had the horse. There, there was a whole group of us, actually, who did go on to doing horse riding stuff. But I was always a bit scared of the horses, really. They've, they've got... Um, uh, you can at least control other people and they know what they're doing. But with horses, they're a bit of an unknown quantity, really. Um, but, yeah, I got to a point at which I had a few quite nasty injuries. And I thought, no, I think a more sedate hobby is probably required, but still involving military history and... Uh, uh, so I got back into the wargaming in a big way after university. So, um, yeah. Uh, and you turned it into a profession, didn't you? Are you teaching at the moment? You... Yeah, I'm a, I'm a secondary school teacher. I'm a yeah. sixth form teacher. Um, I teach history and I teach um, ancient history as well. Um, so uh, there's, a, there's a degree of overlap with it there. Um, I, I don't teach that much military history, really. It's not specifically military history of GCSEs and things. But um, if I can squeeze in the odd exciting battle reenactment or something inside there or dress up in my arm and bring that in to bring the, the the lessons to life and that's that's good fun you know the kids enjoy it and they take away something from it yeah i'm sure so in lockdown the, the last week or so i've been in in teaching sick formulas all about pompey the great so that's been good and sartorius in spain so nice to get a little bit of that sort of passion in there and also the glorious revolution as well um and, and wow. uh, james ii and things and uh, william and mary so um yeah i mean there's lots of stuff that overlaps and I think probably helps me to develop the context of my scenarios and that kind of thing. Um, and a lot of people um, who game with me quite often like, well, sometimes they're probably sick to death of it, actually, but they quite like the fact that often before a battle, I'll try to explain a bit about it, the context of it. So it has some sort of relevance rather than, you know, you, you roll the dice all evening long at 11 o'clock, you, you pack up and go home again. Hopefully there's some sort of meaning behind it all inside it, some sort of purpose. Um, I, I enjoy that as much as I do this sort of uh, the really military side to it as well. I think. Yeah, history history is a lot wider than uh, battles and, and wars, isn't it? Most certainly. Um, so you're linked to the magazine Wargame Soldier and Strategy, which I don't think I've talked an awful lot about on this podcast, but I should have done because it's my favourite of the magazines. Um, oh, you're just saying that now, aren't you? Well. <laughs> <laughs> if there's any free subscriptions going obviously you know where to find me um but no it's it is absolutely uh my favorite um of, of the magazines I, I think the the particularly from the columns that are in there on a fairly regular basis um and and the period specific nature of uh the articles that we get in in the magazine uh just have that that uh that greater appeal i think um so you got involved in that through knowing Guy 
Bowers. Yeah, I'm, so I met Guy, yeah, about 2008, and I think at that point there, I'd, I'd, I'd written a few scenarios for a, 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 a game show that I'd been running, and he'd just become editor of John Kersey, who'd been running the... This was now when it was owned by the Spanish uh, version of WSS, and Guy took it over for about two or three editions and ended up using some of my... Uh, one or two of my articles inside it just before it all closed down. And then the magazine obviously disappeared then for about uh, 10 months, I think, something like that there, uh, or at least the English-speaking version of it did, uh, before Jasper brought it up. And in the meantime then, we suddenly had a very panicky um, uh, need to try and get a first edition together. It came together very, very quickly, and they were under quite a lot of pressure to turn it into a, a first edition magazine that was going to be out on the shelves in WH Smith's. And in the end, I think they ended up talking to me and saying, oh, could you write an article on this? And I said, yeah, no problem. And about two days later, then Guy had an article and he said, oh, any chance you could write an article on this? And I said, yeah, no problem. And then um, by the end of it, Ed, I, think I, I think I wrote about three or four articles for the original um, issue 54 that was the, of the newly, um, the, the new version of WSS when it was released, um, uh, which was um, quite exciting to see your name in print quite so much. Um, but also, I felt a bit, a lot of pressure, I suppose, on me there. Would people actually like what we were, what we were producing, and what I was writing, or was this um, just a filler to keep it going? But luckily, guys kept me on as a sort of person to call to if he, if he needs articles on things. And uh, I think he likes the fact that I can normally look at an article fairly quickly on on most subjects. So, um, so I'm his, quite often his go-to person if there's something bizarre and obscure that he wants. And and has writing one of those articles ever led to you gaming that period or? Oh, constantly. Um, yeah, I mean, Guy Cofton says, "Oh, go and go and research this," or you know, "Can you write me an article on this?" Um, and I'll quite often have to, you know, go and either borrow some figures off somewhere else to play the game, help the scenarios out, or um, just start collecting them very, very quickly. Uh, and unfortunately, that's a real problem in my my figure collection because it means that I've got. Lots and lots of different armies there, and, and very few of them are really large armies. I'm not one of these people who has sort of, um, you know, 15 file boxes of things, but I've, I've got quite a lot of armies, which is of 100 to maybe sort of 300 sort of 28 mil figures, or you know, two or three box files of um, six mil figures, or 15 mil figures, or two mil figures, or whatever. They're not necessarily huge armies necessarily. There's other things that I've maybe done for three or four months and collected together quite uh, enough to play a few games of it, enough to play a small campaign. And then nearly always there's another theme coming along in a different time period and suddenly I've got to be the butterfly and uh, move on to the next thing there. So, um, yeah, yeah, quite often. I'm trying to think what, what I have been gaming recently. because that, The May Wand article I just wrote for the latest um, WSS, I don't know if you've seen that at all. Yes, um, right. Yeah, I've been, I've been play, play, playing that through at the moment and trying to get together Afghans and things for that there. And uh, just trying to trying out the ideas there. There are a few Sudanese figures proxying in there at various points, but um, uh, yeah, I mean, so I'm interested in getting some more stuff for uh, for Afghanistan now because I was enjoying that so much. Um, but the problem is, there's always something else big around the corner that I'm always planning as well. So I've got a few projects on the go at the moment as well, which I, I keep getting distracted away from because, like I say, guy makes me write an article or something else different, and suddenly my attention is drawn away to something shiny and bright. Um, Always as, dangerous as a wargamer, isn't it? Well, as wargamers, we can resist anything but temptation. Um, <laughs> I think that's pretty much true for all of us, isn't it? Mm. Uh, in, in, funnily enough, uh, my most regular wargaming opponent, opponent, who's also a teacher, has just sent me some uh, today some pictures through of uh, 
some northwest frontier British that he's suddenly decided he's going to dive into for a sort of a Mywend uh, themed game. Um, he he is he is the uh, inveterate hobby butterfly. Um, mm-hmm. It was Carlos Wars about three weeks ago that he spent oh, a load dangerous. of money on, and suddenly now he's got, he's got uh, Northwest uh, Frontier British, and he's shown me some pictures of uh, the War Games Factory or War Games. Uh, who is it? The Plastic Afghans. I can't quite remember which company. The Atlantic ones, the War Games Atlantic, Atlantic new ones, are they? Yeah, because yes. yes. of course Perry are bringing out some new ones too. So there's going to be suddenly out of nowhere two two packs of plastic for those. Yes, um, yeah. If you ever want to do it in 28 mil, of course, there's lots of other scale available, as we well know. Well, yes, um, well enough. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, the nice thing with it, though, is sometimes the figure ranges, you know, come back around again, and that, that old dusty collection of Romans and Celts up in my loft suddenly has become very useful again with Infamy, Infamy coming out. We had a game of that the other week, uh, which Richard Clark, who was on here a, a couple of episodes ago, will be pleased about. Um, yes, yes, so, you know, uh, it's very rarely wasted, you know, if it's in a book somewhere and safely packed in a loft somewhere, then um, normally it can be reused again or used in a slightly different period with a little bit of um, a few extra additions or whatever. So, Just, just, on, that, just on that large theme then, um, mm. we uh, discussed about uh, come and have a go if you think you're large enough. Just tell us a little bit about that because that's one of the several lardy themed days that go on across the country aren't there obviously in lockdown uh, we're struggling with it and there's mm. obviously virtual editions yeah i've run it twice now um i first sort of ran it originally because we had a few people down the club who were um obsessed fans of two fat large games there who um i think wanted to showcase some of the things they were doing and uh one of my mates down the club was basically having a really bad time of it he was he was struggling uh in in life generally his wife wasn't particularly well and uh i thought oh, it'd be really good fun uh, to bring bring all these people who i knew down to our club to play there um because he always wanted to go for these other large days and was never able to get out to them so i thought well i'll tell you what i'll organize it and keep it at the local club and i said to begin with thought i oh, will get 30 people or so and it'll be it'll be a nice small event and it'll it'll just about pay off the amount of um, the, the price of hiring the hall or whatever. And then for the first one, we got about um, 50 people in the first few days saying we're interested in playing. And I was like, go blind, okay then. <laughs> and then uh, the first one ended up with about 60 people coming along to it in total, 58, something like that. And I thought, God, we're onto something here. Um, and I deliberately sort of made it, uh, I think it was £4 entry for a day's worth of lovely gaming there with free donuts and tea and coffee there, which Frankly, um, I, I basically did it you know, absolutely to uh, not make money at all, but just to sort of break even and get as many people gaming as possible, really. And um, I think we had about 12 games for the first one there. And uh, Richard came down to that along with um, Nick and Sydney as well. And uh, then afterwards, we went out for a, um, a big all-you-can-eat feast in Southampton, which was quite good fun. And then this year it has grown again. We, we, I think we got up to being the well. I, I don't want to blow my own trumpet here too much, but we, we, I think it must be one of the largest, largest days that has been run. I think we had 80, 87 people coming to it. Um, and in fact, we were quite fortunate. And we had it on May the seventh, which um, another week or two later, we'd have been in complete lockdown, and the entire thing would have been closed now. Yeah, in hindsight, probably looking at it, it probably wasn't the best time to get eighty-seven people together in a crowded hall, was it, and play games? But um, Anyway, we had lots of fun, and uh, it will probably be on again next year. But um, 
it really does depend on the circumstances with everything that's going on with the COVID-19 outbreak there and uh, social distancing and things. We've started getting back to our normal club rooms where we, we hold the show, um, but we're all socially distancing at the moment and we're fitting about half the number of people in and we're hiring a more expensive hall, for example, at the moment. So suddenly, unfortunately, it's gone from being um, a fairly cheap place to hire through to something that's a bit pricier. So I'll have to have a rethink for next year a little bit. I'm not sure we're going to fit 87 people in there, although I'm sure actually in terms of people wanting to come and play inside it, the, the numbers will be huge again. But um, we might have to be a bit sensible about numbers for next year. That, that's a particularly impressive number in view of the location, isn't it? With being on the south coast, if if you're in the Midlands, then you can well, get people from we're people or, coming or, from a long way. Yeah. Um, but I mean, so Anthony, well, I know everybody says Nottingham's a spiritual heartland or Newark or something's a spiritual heartland, but you know, we're in Featherstone country down in, in Southampton. There's, there's a lot of local groups around down here. Um, and we've got you know, probably about a million people in Hampshire itself. So there were probably about 40 or 40 or so people coming from Hampshire or from just into Sussex there. Um, the furthest person, um, Charlie came down from Scotland. He was He's up uh, on Scottish borders there. Um, and uh, a couple of chaps um, came all the way, all came all the way from uh, Norway um, to come down and play, which was completely insane. Um, and he loved it and said he's going to come back again next year, hopefully. So, um, fantastic. Uh, you know, absolute madness some of these people here who want to go and play Lardy games. Well, the, I think as, as, a, as a whole, the hobby brings this out in us, doesn't it? That we'll, we'll travel for that, those games. I was te- uh, speaking to uh, Greg from Little Wars TV last year about how far the Americans travel for their convention fix. But they're generally there for three or four days and it's, it's you know, they make a week out of it almost. Uh, whereas people will travel for a one or two day, day convention to play um, Lardy games in this country. It's quite unusual. If, if it's more than a two hour drive, then a lot of people get a little bit curmudgeonly. Well, about in, in, fairness, in fairness, I am as well, you see. That's why I lazily organise it on my doorstep. <laughs> um, but I mean, that, that was part of the problem for me as well, was that I, I, I'm divorced and I've got um, my kids most weekends at one of the days and therefore the idea of actually uh, taking a whole weekend away to go and do something actually quite often isn't possible. I've, I've, you know, I've got a lot of marketing things to do at weekends and planning quite often during term time and therefore actually I don't get whole weekends but I get a day quite often yeah. um, and, uh, and therefore a one day Lardy show at home or on local territory works for me. Um, I do tend to go to shows mostly around the south of England um, I do occasionally travel a bit further north and things. I've, I've got to Newark normally once a year. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's a, it's a long old trek in the car. You know, if I if I leave at 4.30, 5 in the morning, I'll get there for sort of 8.30 to settle for a game. Um, and then it's about a four and a half hour journey home then. So, um, you know, adding eight hours onto your day by the time you've run a few participation games makes it quite a gruelling one there. Luckily, I've got a few mates in Nottingham, so it's not quite so bad. I can sometimes stay over, but... Um, you know, it's, uh, it's it's difficult to get out for these these bigger days out there and uh, things like um, Joy of Six and things like that. There, I'd really like to get up to, but Sheffield is yeah a four and a half five hour journey there probably in the morning. So um, that that does put me off a little bit. Really, <laughs> that's the only problem with it. It's that um, bit further got, on, isn't it, Sheffield? It's just that next hour and a bit on the car, isn't it? So yeah, um, exactly. yeah. yeah. Oh well, one day, one day, hopefully next year. Well, if uh, if it's running next year, I'm going to make a, an effort to get down south. Um, I, I mentioned before we started that although I've lost the accent or never had the accent, actually, I was, I was born in Southampton. So uh, I, f- I feel as though some of that 
that spirit of wargaming from the uh, the Featherstonian angle and the Neville Dickinson with the um, minifigs yeah. uh, orig- originating in uh, Southampton yeah, must have had, infused me. We had Neville actually turning up for the first. In fact, both of them he's turned up to actually. So he's a, a friend of one of our members and he, he yeah. occasionally comes. Now he's getting quite dodgy. Yeah. He's into his, his mid-80s now, but he, he was he's, he's a great old... Uh, Great old fella, still full of energy and ideas, and he still games actually once a week at my friend's shed. Wow! And, uh, uh, you know he's still very active in terms of that. There, um, it's incredible. He's after Laguerre at the moment, I believe. So okay, okay. Well, yeah. I, I, that's a real connection with history, isn't it? Because um, many figs being one of the original uh, mass-produced uh, figure companies. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So uh, yeah, that's, that's a lovely touch. Um, you mentioned partisan there, and uh, I think I mentioned about doing a, my due diligence around uh, yourself, Mark, by <laughs> doing a little Google search on you and finding the Siege of Manchester, uh, sorry, Siege of Portsmouth. Siege of Portsmouth, yeah. yeah <laughs> sorry yeah. about yeah. that. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is, was pretty well appetised around the interwebs uh, when, you, when you did that. And I get to almost every partisan, and that must have been one that I missed. So oh, I, was, yeah. I, was mo- I was really disappointed to miss that. But uh, just for those that don't know what we're talking about, tell us about that project. Okay. Um, well, in edition 50, I'm going to say 56 now, or 55 of Wargames Old Strategy, must have been about one of the first couple of editions that we did since it was sort of, uh, brought over by uh, Jasper. Um, I wrote some articles all about or a series of connected battles all to do with the siege of Portsmouth in 1642, which was one of the uh, first battles of the English Civil War, well before Edge Hill and that kind of thing. Portsmouth basically declared for the king under Lord Goring. And then William Waller came down and besieged Portsmouth and um, captured Southsea Castle and, and the city surrendered, basically. But it was quite exciting um, in that lots of, sort of local places were involved inside it, and there were lots of funny, uh, bizarre sort of anecdotes that you wouldn't maybe expect inside the English Civil War um, that took place inside it. Uh, so I thought it would make a fun setting for a campaign. And originally I wrote it to play with a bigger scale figures. And actually, having played out with the bigger scale figures, I suddenly realised that lots of the actions inside it required a really macro look, really, at the, the, the scenery and the sort of uh, grand tactical situation uh quite a lot of uh, ships involved inside it bombarding the harbour and that there which in 28 mil is a bit tricky to recreate really properly so i thought well, uh, a few years later wouldn't it be fun to do it in two mil and literally the same week in which i planned out my order to a regular um sydney Randwoods um on his blog started to post up pictures of his 30-year war figures and we got chatting there straight away, and I was, I was unsure if the two mil figures would actually paint into anything that looked good. I'd seen a few pictures on the web that, frankly, looked like a, a car crash, um, and they were based in a, a, a rather old-fashioned style. I think a lot of people had used two mil in the past because, frankly, nobody could see them, and therefore it didn't matter if they were badly painted. And I thought, well, actually, I reckon I could do a pretty good job. You know, I've seen Sydney's ones, and they look good. Um, so I brought a few armies of them and I thought oh, I'll get together a, a game of that. And in the end, um, basically the, the, the game was a sort of grand tactical siege with a table that represented uh, the island of Portsmouth itself, Portsy Island. And um, then outside of it, there were sort of lots of strategic zones that could be captured. So it became a sort of full campaign in Hampshire. 
and all the units inside it were uh, recreated on a one-to-one -one scale. So there were about um, 900 people involved in the siege and in two mil, of course, that's very affordable. And, um, you know, the bases maybe consisted of 100, 150 figures in a base. So, um, yeah, it was a, a, a good fun one to do. We ran it originally at Colours um, with a smaller version. And then the version you saw there was um, 2018 at Partizan, which was a sort of slightly sexed up larger version of it, which had ports downhill on it and things like that there. And uh, I'd, I'd added um, extra, extra ships and things to make it um, come to life a little bit more and recreate the historical battle a bit better. And I had lots of what ifs inside it uh, with uh, different uh, random cards that could crop up. So you could have relief forces coming to save the, the Royalists in Portsmouth and spies and uh, fires and um, outbreaks of plague and uh, shortages of ammunition and all kinds of, uh, sort of other things there to throw into the mix there to make it a little bit more random. So we ran that at Partizan and it was, it was really popular. It won the um, best participation prize that, that year. Uh, which was a real honour to get. And also really nice to, I suppose, showcase how good 2Mil can look if you actually um, uh, spend the time to paint it nicely and, and, and do, the, do the scenery in particular, which I think a lot of people tend to just play it on a very flat surface with bits of felt put down and things, which is fine when you're down the club, but actually you can make it look a grand spectacle as well, uh, which is just as eye-catching, I think, as a, a huge 28mm game. Um, the other thing we did with it quite a bit is we also made quite a lot of our own figures inside it as well, and a lot of um, scratch-built um, buildings and things. We used a lot of buildings from um, Brigade Models. Is it Brigade Models? Yeah, it's Brigade it's Models. Brigade, yeah. yeah, I get them confused with Brigade Games sometimes. Brigade Models, um, they do the beautiful small-scale scenery figures, and we mixed in with it there some lantern ships. Um, but a lot of the buildings inside it were just made at a very cheap bits of um, styrofoam off-cuts from... Um, the underlay from underneath laminate uh, floorboards okay. and a single sheet of that literally could cut a strip off which was about sort of, uh, five mil wide and shape the roofs and then paint them up and um, you get lovely sort of sprawling cottages and things out there which um, a lot of people really admired and, and, and looked really good and also I scratched built out um, Porchester Castle as well uh, on it which a lot of people were really transfixed by but in two mil you see you can make a you know Porchester Castle in 28 mil would take me a year and a half's project probably and it would take up the entire size of my kitchen area. Yeah. Whereas in in in, in two mil, I could make it so it's uh, you know twelve centimeters by six centimeters or something, and I made it in an afternoon and painted it, and um, really, it, it just looked fantastic, you know. And, and yeah, yeah. that's a real advantage of the two of the smaller two mil stuff is you can make a village in an afternoon and paint it, or you can make a baggage train with 40, 40 wagons on it and a load of stragglers and uh, baggage guards and things. You just simply can't do that in the bigger scales. And yeah. recreate those things sensibly um, yeah. on the tabletop without spending, you know, king's ransom, and also having the space to fit it in as well. So if you want those sort of things on your tabletop, I think you know, going small bit six mil or two mil or three mil or whatever is is really the way to do it if you want to have those sort of features in your battles. I was funnily enough, I was listening to uh, the law, the oddcast um, earlier today, and they were talking about terrain and how. A church in 28 mil can pretty much take up half the table yeah. if it's in the chain of command sort of uh, games at the mm. ground scale that chain of command is played at uh yeah a, a church can be half the table um and really unless that church is the focus of the game so maybe playing um the eagle has landed that sort of scenario sure. yeah, yeah um 
you can't just have it as something to look nice to one side. Whereas in the smaller scales, absolutely, whether it's 10, 10 mil down, you can have that church as that little set piece, which is off to one side, draws all that attention, but isn't the main, perhaps the main focus of the game. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And the thing with it is you can also have like a whole string of villages. I mean, most historical battles aren't fought inside one village, are they? No. You know, quite often they're spread out over several miles, you know. I mean, something like Waterloo, we talked about earlier on, is a fairly small battlefield, only a couple of miles across, but a lot of battlefields, particularly, you know, we, I know you're a big fan of World War One things, you go to the Somme or something and you've got what, a front line of what, 20, 25 miles there, you? you know. Yeah, um, exactly. You yeah. Know, and in two mils, you can create that sense of, scale i mean i didn't actually quite do it to a proper ground scale if i had done portsmouth to a proper ground scale it still would have been 28 foot long um, <laughs> but i did it on a yeah exactly yeah and that's, and that's a small small island really but um yeah we, we played it on a six foot by four foot table and got a portsmouth in and the near surroundings uh actually on the tabletop itself um and, and i'm i'm planning as well at the moment on well i'm planning and it's getting built very slowly um a Constantinople 1453 game as well, which I've been posting up lots of pictures on, on Twitter about. I put all the foam in for that, but unfortunately my house has just gone on the market and I've had to tide it all away sensibly to um, to try and not deter off any potential buyers at the moment. But the plan is as soon as I get into the new house, the garage will be turned into a giant uh, Constantinople reconstruction inside there. I've got most of the buildings sort of ready to go, all the big buildings. It's a case of flashing it all out there with the large bits of walls and... Uh, the other buildings to go with that but that, yeah that's going to be an eight, eight, eight foot by six foot the plan is for that eight by six uh, which in two mil is suddenly recreating um it's, it's a big area basically it's it's all of uh medieval constantinople the golden horn uh galacta on the other side with the bosporus uh, and a bit of the marmara sea in it as well so it should be a, a fully sort of uh, naval and land-based campaign uh, around 1453 in the Constantinople. So is that's going to that, be quite epic. Is that something you're looking to take to a, a show similar well, to? I think so. I'm not going to build that just for the fun of it, just for me to play on my own in the garage. No, that's definitely one for shows. Um, the plan is to make that a participation game. Uh, Sydney's meant to be helping me with that at the moment, but it, he's, he's been a bit distracted by other things. But I'm hoping we'll... We'll, we'll get together and start um, start knocking on the troops. I've, I've painted about 20,000 figures for it, which I've been making myself in 2 mil. Uh, but we're going to need about 80,000 Ottomans and about 7,000 Byzantines to defend it. So um, I've still got quite a few more to make, but it's well on the way, really. I think once I really get cracking with it and I get settled with it, I, I should be OK. I'm on summer holidays for the next couple of weeks, so I'm hoping I might be able to um, break the back of it a little bit. They're impressive numbers they are, Mark, that you just casually threw out there. Well, I'm, I'm, the only is to play it in one-to-one scale again. Um, so I, I say one-to-one scale. I mean, when I use two mil blocks, they literally are blocks of figures rather than individual figures inside them. But you can roughly count the number of rows uh, and the number of ranks inside and work out a rough estimate of how many they're meant to be. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm going to try and do it like that. And then in terms of ships, I, I'm going to do it slightly less ships than would have been there. I'm going to do it with about 30 or 40 ships in it. Um, in one to uh, 1,200 scale to go with it, so slightly smaller. Historically, there were probably about 100 ships involved in the siege itself, but I think getting a third of the number of ships still gives a, a fairly good representation of that anyway. Um, and I've been really fortunate as well because I've got a few friends who've been helping me with 3D printers. Um, John Matthews in particular, who's my mate in the Isle of Wight, has been fantastic. He's been designing um, 
a lot of the buildings in Constantinople for me and giving me masters of those. And then um, uh, another mate of mine called uh, Wolfie has been uh, casting them or printing them off, or casting, sorry, how old-fashioned, printing them on his, <laughs> on his printers uh, for me in, in huge numbers. So I've got about... I've got about four and a half foot's worth of, uh, of Constantinople's and triple walls and things out there to put on it and, and things. So yeah, it's, it's getting together quite nicely, but it's slow going. That's the only problem. Um, yeah. Yeah. But the triple wall sections are taking me about um, uh, an hour and a half per inch of wall. And I've, got, inch. I've, I've got I've got four four foot of them to do, Jeez. and I've done about a foot and a half of them so far. So. <laughs> hey, mate, well, that sounds like it's, it's decent progress so far. Oh, it's decent progress. It just needs me to actually just put, put in the time, really, into it, really, and uh, dedicate a few days of just solidly uh, destroying my eyeballs and uh, squinting, I think. Yeah. You uh, you mentioned there about sculpting your own figures. Um, yeah. Now, I've seen pictures of this process on Twitter, um, and the effect is is pretty stunning. Uh, I don't think that's. Uh, uh, I think I think that's an appropriate uh, word to use. Uh, just talk me through that. How did you get into that mindset? Uh, it was it was partly because in a regular uh, when we were doing the siege of Portsmouth game, uh, they did some lovely little sculpts inside there, but they, there were lots of things they were missing out for campaigns that I wanted to make. So um, all the units inside are very formed up in very clear formations and. So, three ranks and 30 frontage or something. And what I wanted was I wanted things that didn't quite fit that mould there of formed troops. So, for example, I wanted to add some refugees uh, coming out of Portsmouth. I wanted to add inside it um, objectives. One of the, the key things that happened inside the siege was that at the very start of it, before Parliament effectively locked down the island of Portsmouth, Goring sent out his, uh, his troops to try and round up all the local livestock. So in fact, at the start of the, the campaign, actually, part of, the, part of the aim of the Royalists really is to bring in as many provisions as possible from the local area uh, and, and bring in herds of sheep and cows and things out there. We were so then um, uh, brought into all the ditches around the city of Portsmouth itself to, to use them as a, a source of food. So I had lots of tokens for that being made, and I thought, oh, I'll try and make them out of green stuff. And to begin with, they were quite blobby. I mean, a, a flock of sheep, basically, is a, in two mil isn't you know, a huge amount of detail in it, really, is some... But part of the trick with it is, that it, you know, if you actually look at my sculpted figures, they're quite often sort of quite big blobs, really. Um, I'd like to imagine what they'd look like from the air. If you ever get an aerial photograph of a riot or um, a football stadium crowd or something like that there, the sort of distance that you're away from, um, I suppose, a, a battlefield looking down there as a war gamer, maybe, you know, you're getting very much a bird's or helicopter's view of it. Yeah. So a lot of it's really in the paint job, and what I do is very simply I sort of give everything a black undercoat inside it, and I just try and pick out some of the main colours inside it, and um, it really tricks your eye into believing that there's a lot more going on inside it than than, than anything else really. Just the same way as I suppose you see a formation of, of people with it, you see a reenactment from a long way away, you don't see all the detail of all the things going inside it. You just pick out certain features like the shields. Well, that, that was the idea, was just trying to create something a little bit different from normal and, and, and also really try and think how would they fight on these bigger formations that you very rarely get shown in the larger scales um, and, and some sort of sense also of just the sheer numbers involved as well yeah. as these battles yeah. that sometimes um, can't come across really. So I, I started sculpting them really as much as anything else for fun really to begin with and I thought, well, what could I do with these? And then for the last about two or three years, I, I've been moaning about it on the podcast, actually, for WSS, and that I've 
I keep trying to play around with different ideas for a set of rules for these and, and none of them quite work. I keep pinching ideas off other rule sets and trying to sort of glue them together. And unfortunately, the end result often looks just like sort of um, some sort of dangerous as a bastard monster, really, of, of all, the, all these horrible bits glued together that I liked. Yeah. And it, it's sort of like the Frankenstein thing doesn't really quite work properly at the end of it all, you know, and I curse it and I go back to the drawing board again. But just recently, I've started getting that actually working for the first time um, really properly in games I'm happy with. So I've started developing a set of rules there called Homunculus Est, which um, is a name taken from um, when I used to do Latin at school. And um, inside the, the, the stories inside it there, used to used to call people, you know, Caecilius Est in Horto or something, would uh, shout out some rude insults to people. Um, <laughs> and Caldex Est was, you're a blockhead. And Homunculus Est was, you're a small man. And I thought, what an appropriate name in Latin for a game in which you are a very small general somewhere, I love controlling that. a massive army of people. Um, what I remember of Latin is, is uh, being taught the uh, the insults and, and the rude words. Yeah. They were the most interesting bit for me. <laughs> yeah, it's all the sort of uh, subjectives and things like that there. You know, it went over my head as well, to be honest with yeah. you. But um, yes, the insults are the things that have stuck with me as well. So, so among the the idea behind that is it's going to be a sort of a a fast play, um, big battle system in which commanders don't worry about small tactical units. They're not worried about cohorts of 500 men. They're interested in really what legions are doing or sort of whole tribes of uh, warriors and things. Um, and I suppose the idea is a bit like inside DBA, maybe we have that sort of uh, that abstraction of units, but maybe represented on something a bit more... Um, uh, accurate rather than sort of four figures representing a war band. We've got literally sort of, you know, seven, eight thousand warriors on a, on a, on a base there moving around, you know. And as a general, you don't see individual fights, but you, you see the sense of, right, are they going forwards? Are they going backwards? Are they running away? Does it all look okay? Um, and I've been, like I say, cobbling together lots of other rules. I'm not very creative when it comes to actually writing my own rules from scratch there, really, but I've, I've sort of, uh, skimmed and, uh, lots of different rule sets together and sort of cobbled the bits I like out of them. Uh, and at the moment, I've sort of pinched a few things from sort of um, square bashing uh, from Peter Pig and to the strongest with that sort of idea of the, the squares there for movement around quite quickly. And I've nicked some bits at a Blood Bowl as well. Have you ever played Blood Bowl? Oh, yes. You had. Yeah. yeah so the idea is sort of the initiative jumping from side to side uh, as you, 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 you mess up, basically. Mm. Um uh, and uh, I, so I quite like this sort of idea of the chaos and confusion of a battle and people seizing the initiative. I know that was using Crossfire as well. So um, I've sort of pinched that system out of it there. So when, when something stuffs up, suddenly your turn might come to a very immediate end and it might then swap over onto the other side, um, which has been quite good fun. Anyway, it needs lots more playtesting. And I've got a few mates there who are helping out with that. Again, um, for old Sydney, it's his birthday in a few days' time. So we're going to give him a birthday bash for his birthday um, over the internet really? uh, while he, he hides away in Roundwood Towers. And also um, another mate of mine, Kurt, Kurt, Kurt Campbell, who's over in Canada as well, is going to come and play that. Um, and I've managed to rope in Guy and people out there to go and play a few games, hopefully, as well. Fantastic. Um, and uh, because it's all on the grid as well, I've, I've sent people top-down photographs of all my units. Yeah. Um, so they can literally print them on their printers and stick them onto cardboard and then play it on a grid of their size. Uh, of their choice on their, in their front room or whatever. Um, so in fact, they could be playing it with, uh, little tiny units of even smaller than two more figures representing it, or they could be playing it at full size if they had my own playing it on my, 
on my da- dining room table or whatever. Yeah, um, that's, that's interesting. I've, um, for many years, I've been part of the playtest team for Peter Pig, so uh, square bashing was one of the yeah. games that I, I assisted with. I, I'm a bit like you. I'm not very creative with, uh, well, anything really, to be honest, but uh, <laughs> rules writing in particular. Uh, I'm, I'm not one of these people who can come up with uh, new things, but I'll, I'll always uh, throw my thoughts into something that's already been created. So Peter Pig do, a, in fact, almost all their rule sets now are grid-based mm. um, to, to a certain extent uh, or another. So I think particularly for those online games, it's it's a godsend, isn't it? Because there's no... Absolutely. There's, there's no, no ambiguity inside the measurement there or somebody sort of cheating and saying, well, you know, you didn't spot the fact another half an inch or something extra and you'd have got the charge in or something. It's, it's very clear cut. So, um, yeah, that'll certainly help if we're playing games online and things. Yeah. Um, but it also just speeds up movement and play as well. And the nice thing with this, this set of rules I'm making here is that you've maybe got 10, 12 units aside who are all based on a single base for movement. So, yeah. in fact, you can actually play a turn through in about three or four minutes, potentially. Right. Um, in fact, you could actually play against a stop clock as well, which is something else worth, worth considering adding into the rules there. Yeah, to chibi um, along those people who... To chibi uh, along those people who to make fast decisions there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the speed of the actual dice rolls and things, it's all done on, you know, the dice sixes and things like that. Therefore, it's pretty straightforward. There's not too many tables of stuff to be looking at, but it's not like those Bruce Quarry rules where, you know, plus three if it's a Wednesday and, you know, yeah. minus two if it's a 10-degree slope or something, you know. Um, it's, it's a little bit more sort of uh, abstracted than that, really, and the speeding up there. But hopefully what I've tried to do there is capture some of the keys of elements that are important for, for, you know, winning an ancient battle and also cutting out some of the tactical flexibility that I think some of the um, the other ancient war games have that I don't think a, a real historical general would have had. But at the same time, I'm, I'm hoping to, and our playtesters might tell me something completely different, still capture some of the fun of it being a good fun game and there's still being choices inside it to make as a general, albeit ones that are maybe... Um, fairly limited in terms of, you know, you can't do absolutely everything you want to do or, you know, detach a single cohort to go and move around the flank of somebody. You've got to think in a much larger way in the same way as a, a, a proper Roman or Gallic chieftain might have to do um, in a battle conditions, maybe. We've got to remember that fun aspect, haven't we? Certainly. Um, you've just come back to that point there that I was, I was going to bring back about what we are actually representing on the table. Um, are we representing that unit leader who, as well as being the, the overall commander or what, you know, where do we pitch that sort of command level? Um, mm. and I think with the smaller scales particularly, and we'll come on to talk about six mils uh, very shortly, um, in, in those grand tactical games, um, you, you have to remember that, uh, the guy at the front of one of your barbarian mobs, hasn't necessarily got radio contact with the overall commander who's sitting on a hill. He, he certainly doesn't have radio contact. <laughs> so, <laughs> He'd be lucky to have a trumpet, wouldn't he, really? You know, yeah, exactly. Or, so or, yeah. best he might have a trumpet or he's going to point his big stick and point them down yeah. uh, to go uh, in, in a certain direction. And pretty much once they're on the way, that's it, that's isn't it. it? They're on their way, yeah. yeah. Um, and there's no recalling them or... Uh, or, or much else uh, in a subtle kind of uh, way. So no, I think that's really important to remember, isn't it? Yeah, you know, if you're going to start recalling stuff and the entire front line's going to hear the blast of your trumpet and a whole lot of them are going to move back, not um, individual units and things. So um, 
yeah, it, it's 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 it it should hopefully capture something a bit more like what a general might have experienced. Although I'm always a bit wary of the fact that you know a war game can ever be truly representative of of what a real battle's like. Well, at the end of the day, um, it can capture some elements of it and maybe give you some empathy with what it might have been like. And I think you can learn something from that, but it, it's not necessarily an entirely a a complete uh, recreation of that battle there and the same experiences. And neither would I want it to be there. You know, an ancient battlefield would have been a terrifying place. Yeah. Uh, Pretty much any battlefield, mate, to be honest. It's, it's horrific, you know. <laughs> so um, I'm very pleased to be sitting here playing with little soldiers and, you know, throwing them in a the bin afterwards, yeah. you know, sweeping the table, um, not doing it with real people's lives. Um, it's, 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 one of those, it's, it's one of those discussions that wargamers occasionally have, isn't it, about understanding what it is that you're representing. But, mm. uh, you know, not trying to get too bloodthirsty about it and uh, un- understanding what you're trying to represent, I guess. And uh, certainly Martin Goddard at Peter Pig, who, who, who is the principal rules writer for, for their set of rules, will always aim to have four or five aspects of whatever particular conflict he's looking to represent and, and get those on the table uh, and, and design the mechanisms around those mm. to represent them. Um, and also include that fun element because we've got to enjoy it, haven't we? You Absolutely. Can't, you can't yeah. feel like we've actually been in that front line of, of you know whatever conflict it is. We we need to enjoy it. It's a social aspect. It's a social uh, event. It's a we have a social contract with the persons that are on the other side of the table so that we both enjoy the game um, and not have this win at all costs aspect. It's about having a, a, a joint experience to recreate what it is and you know if you win all the better but uh, you, know, you can uh, <laughs> yeah absolutely absolutely you want a you want a degree of competitiveness but i mean yeah. the, the aim of these rules here really isn't to, I, I put a point system inside it much against my my better judgment really i much prefer scenarios where you know historical side lines up and if that means it's asymmetrical and you've got a challenge in your hands then all the better frankly yes absolutely. um so, um, yeah, I, yeah, I mean, hopefully it will be an experience and you never know. You might even see it in print at some point there or it might just go into a dusty uh, computer file somewhere and never see the light of day ever again. But um, Well, that, that was going to be the next question. Will we see this? Is there something that will commercially will uh, be available? Well, uh, possibly at some point now. I need to I need to work it out a little bit. I, I'm always dreaming of the sort of the retirement plan, uh, getting out of teaching and uh you know, doing something within wargaming really to sort of... Doing uh, a proper job. But at the end of the day, it doesn't pay the bills um, no, 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 so well. Don't get me wrong, you know, there's there's your couple of quid in there for the figures I buy and things. Um, but it is, yeah, it's 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 not really a long-term plan in terms of, um, you know, a full-time job. I can't do it like Richard Clark will be doing it. I don't think, I don't know I've got the skill to be able to uh, sell... 10,000 copies of a set of rules even before they've been published or something crazy like that. No world Um, domination plans just yet then? Not quite yet. Not quite yet, Sean. But we've got to start small and work our way up there. I might dip my toe in the water maybe next year if I can find somebody to help me publish it maybe. And I might get it to a stage which I'm happy with it really. Um, I've I've written enough sets of rules inside War Games magazines. You know, it's a funny thing, the feedback you get from different people. And some people love some of the things I've written and some people write back and pick holes inside it. I'm not a great rules lawyer sort of person who can perfectly uh, sort of set out a set of rules. Um, a lot of my ideas tend to be sort of quite um, quite wacky ones there and um, and sometimes people pick up on little sort of nuances inside them that don't quite work or 
And I, I say, well, the, the whole point of the set of rules in the board games magazine was more to give me some ideas to go away and be inspired rather than to, you know, play this to the nth degree and, 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 and pick it apart for a competitive set of rules or something. Well, that, that goes back to that creativity bit that I was talking about earlier on, getting away from those four M's of movement, missiles, melee, morale. Unless people try different things and come at it from a different angle or come up with some revolutionary new new mechanism and, and give it a go and put it out there, then not everyone will work, will it? But you might just find that one thing that from from that yeah, yeah. something great grows. So well, I think um, out to your elbow, mate. Yeah, I think a lot of people though who do the successful rules tend to just come up with one really creative new idea and then there's a lot of old familiar mechanisms on it yeah. um, that they'll add around it. Um, you know, and, and actually you don't want a set of rules that's so out of the box that you feel uncomfortable with every single phase inside the game. You, you want you want to be familiar and sort of know yeah. roughly, you know, or a full plus as a hit or something, yeah. you know, and, and learn those ones quickly at the start and then maybe have one, or as you say, one or two things you focus on, like Martin Goddard, uh, you were saying earlier on, picks the era and says, well, what are the, what are the key things that we need to develop here? Mm. Um, and, I, and I think probably that's the way I wanted to be with this set here, really. But and like I say, we'll see. I'm a bit, I'm a bit tentative about it. But you never know. You might just see them at some point there. I mean, the part of the problem with it is, let's face it, how many people have got huge two mil armies to go and play with? Um, you know, or six mil or three mil or yeah. whatever. You know, um, there's quite a few six mil ones out there. Uh, but it'd be interesting to see um, if I can convert a few more people to, to the smaller scales. Yeah, well, that that moves us on nicely to the next point because uh, we are, uh, it's branded as a six mil podcast, but I I did say very early on that I'm I'm not adverse to talking about other scales uh, in that smaller arena, something below 15 mil really. Um, Yeah. Because there's been very little attention over the years, whether it's in magazines, whether it's uh, demo games that we see at conventions. whether it's discussion on podcasts, in fact, and I know that Meeple's uh, talked about it from time to time. I know Neil um, did some Napoleonics back in the day, but it doesn't seem to have had or gained a lot of traction over and above what Peter Berry would do whenever he, he was a guest on a podcast or mm. when he's evangelising at a show. Um, there doesn't seem to have been much inertia or momentum with uh, inertia was the wrong word. Sorry, uh, momentum. Inertia, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, in, uh, much momentum. I think uh, amongst it, and that's partly why I started the podcast really to generate that discussion about how you creatively you could get with six mil. But I think that's been really good for the hobby, hasn't it? You know, do something specifically six mil like that. And again, Pete Berry's joy of six has gone from being a, a small show with you know half a dozen tables and something which is really grown now into being the first six mil show which everybody knows about there it's getting some fantastic tables i think the key thing is the quality of the games inside it as well it's fantastic you know they could they could be winners at salute any year really couldn't they you know these ones here you see and i think it's really good to get some of these you know, wonderful 28 mil games which are huge and sprawling with beautifully painted figures around for their money and so that in fact it doesn't really matter what the scale is if it's delivered well with somebody who's researched into it and put the time and effort into painting the troops there, it can look just as good, if not, I think, somewhat better. Yeah. Particularly if you can you can get some a better representation of the actual battle with a number of figures involved. Um, so I think it's great to see things like Joy of Six there getting so much um, attention now. 
Inside magazines, I'm seeing more of it, but there's still that barrier, which I think comes down to um, not necessarily the editors, actually, but more actually uh, a shortage of articles from some people there. And, and I do try and write smaller articles or ones that can represent smaller scale figures. Um, in fact, quite early on in my WSS days, I wrote something all there all about um, why six mil uh, figures were fantastic. And we would always be playing with six mil all the time there. Um, I'm not sure quite how many converts that got, probably. Well, I remember the article, definitely. But, you know, well, you know, it, it wasn't just simply tokenism. At that point, there, I painted up uh, three or four massive, great big rapier armies of uh, ancient figures there, some some Macedonians and ancient Indians and Persians and, and Greeks and things and Republican Romans. And, and they still come out quite regularly. For a lot of my, a lot of the scenarios I write for magazine, which are ancient ones, I, I often play them in six mil. Um, as the scale of choice because I can get it out and I can play it in a, a smaller space and also I tend to have the troops for a, a really good variety of troops for lots of different ancient periods in the classical world uh, so it's it's quite gameable you know and if I want to buy another division of troops another sort of uh, you know 100 horsemen or whatever it's quite affordable and I can paint them in a few afternoons rather than it being um, something that's going to take me the rest of the year and it's a huge project and you know, uh, half of my loft space so um, six mil is, is for me a really really useful scale to be using. Um, for ancient battles, I use it, um, and also um, we've been doing some Kriegspiel games as well. Okay. Um, in fact, we did it. At Come and have a go if you think you're larder. We did a big Kriegspiel game of uh, Ekmo, yeah. in which we used um, six mil figures from um, Commission Miniatures, the uh, the MVF company there, oh, yes. and. Uh, put them all on little bases with little national flags on them rather than the usual sort of flock and static grass jobs uh, and with little name tags on the back of them and each one of those was a brigade of soldiers um, and that was a, that was a great way of uh, getting together lots of uh, pretty six mil tokens there to uh, sort of represent these huge great big uh, cores fighting out in 1809 in Austria uh, and Bavaria which was um, you know a really really good way of doing it. But I think the big problem really is getting good photographs uh, and getting uh, getting those in there. Guys often quite keen on in WSS at least anyway, getting uh, more six mil stuff in it. But very simply, a lot of the photographs we get in aren't of the sort of quality that is good enough to be printed in the magazine. And, and unfortunately, um, very good sharp quality pho- photography really sells magazines uh, for nicely painted figures. The problem is I think we've got a lot of very very good six mil armies out there that look beautiful. Actually getting the photographs with all the figures, um, in focus and getting the depth of field when you've got the serried ranks of six mil figures is actually really tr- quite tricky. It requires a, a degree of photography skill that I don't really have. Um, and normally you need to have the right setup. You need to have a stand. You need to have the, uh, the lighting right. You need to have a, a delay on the camera there and sort of longer exposure time to cut out that, um, that depth of uh, field problem so that everything's in focus. And very few gamers, unfortunately, take that quality photographs of their collections. You know, in fact, I'm still learning myself and very regularly I'll take pictures of six mil things or two mil things and I'll send them into magazine and, and they get rejected quite often, actually, unfortunately, not because they're not well painted and beautiful figures, just purely because my photography skills with my camera phone aren't up to what's required in the magazine, really. So um, if there's one tip out there, if you want to get more six mil stuff into the magazines, really, I know we've got some great, great figure painters out there and some beautiful armies. And some wonderful train setups, but um, get, getting those photography skills down to a T would be really, really useful, I think. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because there are good pictures out there. Um, and I'm, I'm always an advocate to, to look at some of the pictures that Peter takes of his figures, for instance, 
particularly in the set pieces um, where he's got some of the scenery there uh, and, and troops moving through it. But I think you're absolutely right. Overall, the quality of the pictures is, is lacking. Um, and the magazines rely upon the pretty pictures, don't they? As much but, as the uh, words. It, yeah. I mean, they're the things actually, um, when people pick up in WHMFs, they, you know, they'll look at the pictures first. They yeah. won't read the articles, you know, I could be writing a load of nonsense inside it, but if the pictures are pretty, yeah, people will probably be happy with it. I mean, the other thing is that also, from my eye, what I think is a good photograph, you know, and looks quite nice to the magazine, uh, people like Christie, who do WSS and do the sort of, um, uh, the, the setting of the layout and things out of it there. You know, she'll pick out problems with photographs that I wouldn't have even noticed. Right. Um, because they're real experts, this kind of thing here. Um, whereas, you know, unfortunately for the amateur, untrained guy, you know, you're not necessarily going to spot some of these problems in the photographs that she would be spotting for it. So quite often, like I say, I'll send in a photograph that looks really good to me. And it just simply isn't up to standard. So right. um, we, we really do need to up our game in terms of that there. But, you know, I don't think we're adverse to having them. And I'm sure other magazines are, are, are quite keen on getting six mil stuff in it as well. I know um, uh, Dan up at uh, War Games Illustrated has also said how keen he is to get six mil inside the magazine more um, as well there. And I think just the more we can get it on show, the better. Yeah. But it's been really nice on things like Twitter and Facebook to be seeing so much on social media, actually, in recent years, I think, really increased it. And I think that's raising people's awareness of the scale and people are experimenting with it and realising you can do some, some great stuff in 6 mil and 2 mil and 3 mil. Uh, and, you know, there's some of the stuff from 10 mil from Pendragon and things like that. It's absolutely stunning at the moment, I think. But yeah. The quality of the painting on that is um, mind-blowing. Yeah, agreed. I think... Um Perhaps also we have the issue where uh, people look at the, the these really fantastic pictures in magazines by some of the real premium painters in the hobby of the 28 mil stuff. And that is almost set as the standard, isn't it, of how you need to paint your figures. And not everybody can be a Kevin Dallimore or Jim Ibbotson or whoever it is who's who's producing some of the really top draw work at the moment in 28mm. Yes, that sells the figure, but then when you get the figure in front of you and you start painting it and it feels like you're using a three-inch brush uh, (laughs) and you think, oh my God, this looks nothing like the image that I've seen of a 28mm. And it's the same with the 6mm, I guess, that some of the real top draw stuff that we're seeing in six mil or ten mil or your your, your own stuff in two mil, um, people can get a bit of stage fright almost. I guess a little bit concerned that their own product isn't up to standard and therefore they they might get disheartened and move on or whatever. As opposed to realizing that there's a journey to be had in mm. learning these techniques to paint. Uh, and present your figures, you know, in the basin. And, um, that it doesn't really, if my figures aren't award winning figures, it doesn't matter. No, once you play the game. Yeah, once you're on the table, once you're on the table, you know, it doesn't really matter, does it? Because, yeah. um, viewed at arm's length is my, always my benchmark. <laughs> it's, it's almost everybody's benchmark, isn't it? it you is, don't want to hold it up yeah. under your nose and scrutinize it. There's few people who paint figures that can have their figures held up under your nose and you say, yeah, that's an absolutely top draw paint job. Uh, it, it's that arm's length uh, view, yeah. isn't it, I guess? 
Yeah, I'll have to root out some pictures of my old heroics and Ross stuff when I was a, an impoverished sixth former. He couldn't afford anything, and I remember painting up all the little one to three hundred tanks and figures for that there. Yes, I think they were they were decidedly mediocre in their paint jobs on them. So I'm well, sure if I showed that and said, look, this is where it went to, and this is how it's improved. Really, it's just practice. It's technique on it and that kind of thing there. And there is a lot of stuff now online about how to paint figures and, and make them better. And, and certainly with the T-mill stuff, a lot of people say, oh, how can you paint it so small as that? And I'm just like, well, it really is down to technique. There's nothing uh, accurate in terms of me filling in, you know, the spaces properly with my paintbrush. It's very uh, impressionistic, I suppose. Rather than it being sort of precise, um, I, do, I, think, I do sometimes. I do sometimes think, you know, that when people talk about uh, how can you paint anything so small, that they expect they they'll see something that's really well painted, like your own stuff in two mil or the six mil stuff, and that if they pick it up and get a magnifying glass, that we'll see buttons and turnbacks and you know um, edging and piping. I think that's what they, in their mind's eye, they're thinking you will get. But you don't because no, it's, it's, all. Just that it's impression, isn't it? It's, the it's all about impressions. Yeah, absolutely. And it's using that black space as much as yeah the colour that you put. Yeah, in. absolutely. In fact, it was funny with that. Uh, I was talking about the Porchester Castle model um, earlier on, and the keep inside that was literally a single block of um, bolster or something like that. There, um, and uh, a lot of people went, "Oh, did you did you sculpt all those little tiny castellations going up and down?" And I said, "No, I just." I drew them on with a fine liner pen. <laughs> up and down. They were black and the bits in between it. Right. And then I used a little tiny white highlight underneath all the windows that I painted on and all the um, and all the castellations as if the light was catching on the angles on it. Yeah, yeah. And, and the people looked at them and went, oh, are they all sculpted on? And no, it's just a completely flat block of square of, of wood there. And it's sort of a really simple technique and you didn't need yeah. to be actually a genius to sort of do it in terms of the actual skill involved in drawing these lines. You needed a steady hand, but it wasn't like I was doing some sort of, you know, five shade sort of a blending method with uh, beautiful ink washes and that kind of thing. It was very simplistic. Yeah. But because the eye saw the light and saw the contrast between it, it, it captured it and imagined that there was something there that wasn't there at all. Yes. Um, so you can be really clever with small figures and you can really trick people's uh, eyes and imaginations completely. Um, there's all kinds of things that are there that aren't there at all. Yeah, it's smoke and mirrors, isn't it? I think that um, there's 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 tricks and t- techniques that you can learn to help that presentation. Um, and that that works pretty much in 28 mil. I can always remember the old saying: "It's faces and bases." That's in, it. Yeah, Five, 28 bases. Yeah, yeah. And I think in in six mil and lower. It almost comes down to basing, doesn't it? I was going to say, but base, basing is a thing, actually. And so many times I've seen some really nicely painted six more figures on some shocking bright green sort of nasty 1970s sort of railway flock. Yes. Basis. And you look at it and go, oh, my gosh, that's horrible. Yeah. And equally, I've seen some um, pretty awful painted six more figures on quite nicely done bases, which... um you know, from a gaming distance, look absolutely stunning until you yeah. get up close and realise yeah. that, in fact, they're, you know, look a dog's, dog's dinner. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, things like Pete Berry doing that sort of basing system from Bacchus is, I think, been really good at saying to people, actually, you don't need to be a, a basing genius to actually get a, a pretty good standard of basing that looks tidy and nice and from a distance looks absolutely fantastic on a tabletop. Um, so, something I'm struggling with at the moment, and I, I don't know if you can sympathise with this or understand where I'm coming from is 
with the base, I, I love the, the Peterberry, uh, the Bacchus basing system. That's great. But very often that that will clash with the cloth or the table that you're putting them on. So uh, mats and, and blankets and teddy bear fur and this sort of thing, face blankets are all the rage at the moment, aren't they? That you can buy these commercially made ones or you can make your own. But not very often do you see uh, the base of the figure actually have any sort of blending in to the ground. Yeah, I mean, that was part of the thing I did with the Sage of Portsmouth game was I made a really conscious choice to try and make sure that the, the landscape around it and all the, the flock used inside it was going to try and match up with the um, the, the actual figures and their bases. Um, so um, I think it really does make a difference. And I know Pear Broden was on the other day, and of course he's sort of the master of blending in the, yes. the figures into the train there, and they, they looked absolutely sort of... Um, at home inside it, don't they? You know, they yeah. look very natural onto the, the, the huge, great bits of landscapes that he produces. Um, yeah, to be honest, it was your, it's your Caesar Portsmouth game that made me think of that point. Um, for that very reason, the village, the, the towns and villages and all the extra bits that you've got there, it absolutely blends into the, it's, it's clear, it looks like it's the same basic material across everything. It was a, yeah, it was a, a wide variety of different things, really. I just used, um, all the uh, railway uh, woodland scenic stuff, uh, which sort of very natural colours and that kind of thing there, mm. um, and sort of blended that all in there. And I know you were talking the other day when you were out for your walk, talking about what sort of grass looks like underneath bases yeah. and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I use I use a, sort of the same sort of basing technique really as twenty eight mil figures. I use sharp sand, PVA down, and then that painted brown all over, and then dry brushed a sort of creamy colour to look like sort of chalky sort of um, dried out earth. And then I use a mixture of sort of uh, woodland scenics, fine, um, fine scatter, I think it is. And then with a little clumps of clump foliage and things like that on it there. And I'd, I'd pretty much do the same thing in six mil as well, but I sometimes use the, um, the grass tufts as well. Oh yeah. For a slightly sort of more arid look to it there, a little bit rougher. And I use a few more of the bigger stones and stuff on the six mil figures. Um, and that's, that creates a really nice Mediterranean, uh, Middle Eastern, uh, sort of Indian, Afghanistan sort of uh, a landscape there, which I, 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 I use normally on like desert basin quite often for the, sort of the landscape thing I fight it over. But it tends to blend in with all kinds of different things. So you were sort of talking the other day, why don't we just sort of grass over all our figures? And I suppose the advantage of that mixture of, sort of different um, scenic materials on bases tends to blend it in with a lot of the bases a lot more effectively. Whereas I think if they were grass all over, they, they would stand out like a sore thumb against that a little bit more. I suppose it disguises the shape of them a little bit more. It's, it's that conundrum, isn't it, that we want to have that multi-use. Um, and really, it was just a, to be a bit thought-provoking, I think, about that, the, the thing about the basing, because it's pretty much ubiquitous across all scales, and it has been for years now, that you have this, this brownie, sandy earth base with mm. bits of static grass dotted around, and now, obviously, the, the, um, the clump foliage things that, mm. Uh, the many nature tufts or whatever the tufts they go the tufts mm-hmm. uh, that we stick on which have been around for what five six seven years I guess mm-hmm. um, and when when I was walking through that field I'm thinking well it doesn't really look what we've like, got <laughs> across here well, and, I, I and, think and, and, and there's that point that once ten thousand men have marched across it then it will start to look a little bit and trampled yeah I think also the light base is also really important it's a framing the figure as well yeah. 
Um, so it's, it's, it's to do with colour and picking out the, the person on that there and, yeah. uh, and the model on it a little bit carefully. So, you know, it's, it's, it's an artistic, uh, another artistic trick, isn't it, there, rather than being an accurate recreation. This is the same way as we, you know, we probably over-highlight our 28mm figures too, don't we? Yes. You know, to yeah, make them stand out and, you, you know, you capture your light along the, the blade of the sword or something there, you know, if you want to make it shine in that way there and stand out from three feet away. But actually, in, in real life, maybe the highlights are somewhat dulled down in comparison. Yes. But, you know, you exaggerate those deliberately for effect, don't you? Well, I think if we painted our figures as they would have appeared in reality... Pretty much everything would be brown, wouldn't it? Yeah, covered in <laughs> shit, shit and mud, wouldn't they, basically? You know, so, um, yeah, it would be a pretty dull game, wouldn't it, really? It would be, mate, yeah. Um, yeah. Just, uh, we've talked about Pear, and Pear has a community project on the go. Yeah, yeah. Which uh, you were invited to take part in. Yeah, I've been roped into that, yeah. Um so uh, you've talked about this a little bit before, but the, the pair basically is a replacement for Joy of Six. Uh, decided it'd be nice to do something as a community project to celebrate six mil scale figures and to get a bit more, um, I suppose, attention given to them there. So he's designed this project. I think it's got about 40, 40 gamers inside it, is it? Is that right? Something like that, yeah. I mean, 43, 44 gamers inside it. And, and basically, uh, Pete Berry from Bacchus has provided some, uh, two armies in six mil. Roughly sort of based around Great Northern War, sort of, uh, nine years war era, the end of the 17th century, early 18th century. And, uh, with two fictional signs involved inside it, which, um, for some reason he roped in myself and Sydney to be the, the, the monarchs of. So I'm King Marcus Backhouse or something. Of, we're uh, on the same side, by the oh, way. Oh, we were the blues, hurrah. Yes, of, we're blues. Of Densway. Yeah. Densway. Densway yes. An anagram of Sweden. Yes. Um, so uh, I got through the post of a couple of little packs of uh, really beautiful command figures uh, from Bacchus and pair something along a few extras as well there. And um, I, I don't know how many I painted and then probably about 16, 20 figures, something like that there. All the high command, which was which was a rather a privilege, I have to say, to uh, to get to paint the, the fancy high command there, which was very nice. For and I had great fun painting those, actually. Uh, and it was nice because I only had a small number to paint. I could really lavish detail on them in a way which I might not ordinarily do to an ordinary unit. Um, so to paint the royal standard and things like that there with two or three layers of highlights on the uh, the different uh, features and it was quite good fun. Yeah, you did you did quite a good job, and I think I posted I'm giving up at that point. Oh, sorry about that. Yeah, see, this is <laughs> what you're saying early on. So a nice paint job, so you know, the scary prof. But as Pear said, you know, once you start basing it all in the same way. And on the tabletop, it'll all look crack in there, really. So I think the plan is then that we're going to be facing up against the uh, the Russian beast of uh, Sydney Roundwood, although I can't quite remember what his fictional country's called. Well, it doesn't matter. They're going to lose. It's another it. anagram of Russia or something, isn't <laughs> yeah, it? Yeah, anyway. it doesn't matter. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> yeah, he's going to be playing with his son there, uh, the uh, the young protege, uh, Max, there, a few games of, uh, with these, these armies once they're all based up and they've all been sent to him. And uh, uh, blogging mate, about them on his uh, Roller One uh, yeah, website. Yeah. And then the mate, plan is then to flog them for charity as well. Well, that's, so a, think, that's a real good cause, isn't it? Yeah, no, I think that's yeah. great. I think for combat stress there. So it's nice to um, get a bit of publicity for uh, Six Mil stuff. Nice to help Pear out because he's a good mate of mine. Yeah. Um, but I, I play the odd Kriegspiel with Pear. Oh, okay. Uh, online. We, we, we sometimes, we've been playing a few games on Twitter, um, just using sort of uh, DMing messages. Yeah. Um, and we had him, um, 
chasing around Indians uh, around uh, the reservations in the 1860s into okay. uh, a campaign last year, which he quite enjoyed playing in. Um, and he was a sort of a, a sort of a Quaker sort of preacher, sort of converted to being sort of a cavalry officer, who had all kinds of sort of qualms about the, what, the terrible treatment of the Indians on the reservations. Okay. Uh, and he was sort of juxtaposed with another character there. He was um, uh, loosely based around uh, a, a very popular uh, politician. Oh, no, I say popular. Um, maybe not popular, actually. An infamous British politician during the Brexit debates there. He was something of a sabre rattler. Um, he was sort of uh, claimed that he'd, uh, he'd fought in lots of wars and uh, knew how to deal with the Indians all the time. Um, I'm not going to bring politics into this too much, but anyway, um, Major Francois was a, was a good fun character to sort of contrast him with anyway. And, uh, basically we're trying to deal with Little Crow's rebellion in Minnesota. Um, and, uh, with hilarious consequences most of the time. Um, yeah, so that was good. So we played that as a, an online Kriegsfield together. And we also played one a few months ago in lockdown. We had, um, we had a game based around, uh, the Isle of Wight being raided during the Hundred Years War by, um, uh, the French and Spanish, which we we played through as well, which um which pair was the commander of the, the garrison on the Isle of Wight trying to get together lots of local militia units to try and uh, face off the, the French and Spanish forces, again with hilarious consequences most of the time. So um yeah, he's a good egg, his pair, and full yeah. of enthusiasm and uh, uh always uh, keen to play up some fun ideas. He's, he's a role player at heart, you see. So he I enjoys love, all the funny things. Yeah. yeah. I love that idea. I've, um, after speaking to Rich, I uh, I must have gone into some sort of trance because I I bought Infamy, Infamy, and the yeah. Creechfield uh, oh, from the Lardies that night. So I'm looking forward yeah. to having a go at that myself. It's yeah. some, I've never the, done before, but the Creechfield ones have been really good fun. Actually, yeah, we played one with uh, Richard. Well, I played quite a few with Richard and Nick. Actually, I've been been dragged along into those and run a few for them as well. Yeah, and um, yeah, they're really immersive and. We were talking on about some of the experiences that a general might really face and the decisions they might have to make. And those pre-experience ones probably actually get you making decisions more accurately than you ever would do inside a, a war game, which you know the rules. Yes. And, and you know the constraints and you know your chance of this happening. You get all kinds of interesting situations where on the tabletop you'd know exactly what was happening because you could see all the figures and you could work out the odds and you think, well, I've got a, you know, a 70% chance of capturing that town in the next three turns. And in the Kriegsfield, you know, you sit there and your doubts suddenly take over and you think to yourself, well, I've got four battalions of soldiers, but maybe they've got more soldiers hiding around the back in reserve or something. And, you, you know, you hold off, make a completely terrible strategic mistake or something um, that uh, on a war games table with figures you just might not do. And so it really creates that fog of war element that you maybe don't have on the tabletop. And okay. um, also some awful situations as well in which, you know, you're, you're forced to make decisions which... Uh, normally are, are pretty awful. Um, yeah, and you realize yeah. in fact, you know, no longer are you sort of the, the Alexander the Great that you dreamed you ever were, you know, in fact, you realize you'd be one of those sort of D-list, uh, generals who was probably kicked out after the first few weeks of the war, you know, because you were so terrible and then soldiers, they're death terribly. Um, well, he's had experience anyway, so. Well, I'm currently involved in a email, um, campaign, which Wonderful. I guess must, must be run sort of, uh, along Kriegspiel guidelines, but I've absolutely no idea what I'm doing. It's down in your part of the country it's taking place, actually, uh, uh-huh. all across the south. I'm, uh, I'm sort of in between Newbury and... Win- it's an English Civil War campaign. Yep, uh, Newbury and... 
Newbury and Winchester. I'm sort of, I'm, I'm under siege yeah. in Winchester at the moment. Oh, good. Um, Did you, I've written an article on that as well, actually. That's oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, Winchester's, yeah, quite close for a little day trip out there. So, yeah, there's some interesting Civil War battles that are taking place around Winchester. The, the interesting bit is, I've absolutely no idea what the hell I'm doing or yeah. what anybody else is doing. Cause but I'm that's, that's, that's the joy of it, and probably the same experiences the commanders had at the time as well, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah no, there's, there's a lot of Civil War stuff around Hampshire that's well worth seeing. Uh, I was up at Cheriton the other day. Okay. Uh, for a walk in the countryside with, with my kids and stuff. That's great, great battlefield just outside of Winchester. And yeah. just across the, uh, about 10 miles south of that down at Romsey, yeah. there was another little civil war battle there as well, which I've, I've written an article on about and things. So there's quite a lot going on in Hampshire. And it's, it's really interesting to find out those little local stories of battles that are maybe involving a couple of hundred people that are very, very gameable and, uh, really interesting, but, uh, yeah. just aren't that well known to the sort of general narrative of the, English Civil War and the big battles and things. Yeah. Um, yeah, English really Civil War is, a, is another sort of... Well, I've got a lot of interest in, in civil wars. Uh-huh. Uh, Stop, to be honest. What, you know, what makes one country tear itself apart? So yeah. uh, English Civil War, American Civil War, Spanish Civil War. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, in English Civil War, because we've got that local context. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting experience, never having done anything like this before. Uh-huh. Um and to have the umpire uh, sending me through cryptic messages about troop movements and, and my own uh, commanding officer telling me uh, what I need to do. And I'm saying, well, I can't do that because of this. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. Really, and even at work, I'm getting emails ping. I had an email through at work today that pinged through that said, that there needs to be an urgent dispatch to deal with this situation. I'm like, yeah. well, I'm in work at the moment, but okay, okay, I'll, I'll, try and, I'll, I'll, I'll try and sort it out for you. Give me 10 minutes. Yeah, yeah, no, they're, they're, they're dangerously immersive. Um, yes, very uh, especially uh, Rich and Nick's ones, if you ever get a chance to be in one of those. I'd love to. Uh, and, and completely anarchic at the same time. Um, can imagine. And I've been, I've been nicknamed by them Peaches ever since because of my... Uh, my, my refusal to hand out uh, peach supplies to the, the local population of Larden. And they then had a giant peach riot in which they then broke into the stores and threw cans of peaches at my soldiers and generally generally caused havoc. That's um, not what my street makes, to be honest. Well, yeah, yeah, it's good fun, good fun. Yeah, yeah. Uh, mate, um, thanks very much for your time tonight. I've got one more, I've got one more little task for you. Go um, on. Well, one one of which will be if you've got anything to plug, uh, but we'll come on to that shortly. Uh, but uh, there is a virtual God's Own Scale library. That uh-huh. Every guest has to leave a book uh, and deposit a book in oh, okay. for other people uh, to peruse. Uh, so right. it can be on military history, it can be on wargaming history generally. Okay. Um, the choice is yours, and I know I'm, I never prep anybody. I always say, "Oh my God, can I run into the, can I run to my bookshelf now? Give me yeah, three yeah, seconds. Hold on, hold on. Look at that. Oh, never sorry. noticed you were gone, mate. Never noticed you were gone. You never noticed you were gone. That's the joy of uh, the technology you're using there. Right, I, I, there's, there's two books actually, and one must be up on my bedside. I must be reading it again for the fifteenth time through. Um, but uh, one book is the, the Roman Army at War by Adrian Goldworthy. Yeah. Um, which is uh, basically what it does is it pinches the same uh, sort of ideas from sort of Keegan's face of battle oh, and yes. applies it then to the Roman world inside 
is basically in the first century BC and um, first century AD, effectively. And for those of you who are really keen on playing infamy, infamy, and that kind of thing, there, that probably is the book in terms of thinking about um, how the Roman army fought into that time period there, and really breaks it down into looking at the, the generals' battle and their experience and the individual uh, units' battle and the individual soldiers' battles as well, and, and sort of uses a lot of primary sources inside of this to try to reconstruct what that Roman battle was like. Um, and I think that's an absolutely fantastic read if you like your Roman stuff there. But I've got another one here as well, which is a bit tatty now, which I think I brought at exactly the same time when I went to um, uh, Oxford to the big bookshop there, which is Battles of the Greek and Roman World, a compendium, John Drogo Montague, and I think that's an absolutely classic introduction to ancient battles for those of you who probably look around at some of the ancient texts and go, well, I'm not sure I want to read Herodotus and Tacitus and Plutarch and things like that there. What it does is it basically gives summaries of all the battle bits inside it, all the good bits, the bits you'd enjoy, and cites where all the sources are and summarises them in a nice sort of overview using all the different primary sources and um, then tells you where to find out about this original sources from. And that's a great starting point for so many battles and so many games I've had down the club you, you wouldn't believe. So if you're interested in, in Roman battles or Greek battles, that's the one that only goes up until 31 BC. Uh, but it's, uh, it's, a, it's a classic one. There. It must have about eight, nine hundred battles inside it, described inside it. So a great place to start your scenario writing. And uh, if you like your Romans and Greeks, that's the place to go to. Mate, that sounds absolutely fantastic. That will take pride of place. Well, both books will take pride of place. Uh, on their God's own scale, Very like virtual library shelves. I love that. In fact, the, the, you mentioned the uh, Keegan book there, Face of Battle. It's a firm favourite of mine. So if uh, the Roman but if you like Keegan, you'll, you'll like that Goldsmith. In fairness, Goldsmith, he's done some pretty classic ones. I know he's a war gamer himself, so yes. he tends to sort of write things that you sort of know that war gamers will probably secretly quite enjoy. Yeah. And focuses on all the details that nobody else would really care to be interested in, but we quite like, really, don't we? So, yeah, yeah, we don't. Um, you know, he hits a nail on the head for me, really. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. Uh, mate, thanks very much for your time. It's an absolute yeah. pleasure. Thank you. I know we had a little bit of technical difficulty all the way through, <laughs> but through the power of editing, that will be seamless and nobody will notice. <laughs> <laughs> Apart from the fact I've just disclosed it. On, on oh, well, there we are. <laughs> Uh, have you got anything uh, coming up, mate, that uh, you want to shout out about? Or uh, not really? No, I suppose keep keep watching the space and listening to the WSS podcast, and I might be able to give you some more tantalising glimpses of what's happening with Homunculus Est if that actually appears in any form of gaming thing. Then that would be wonderful. Yeah, um, published up somewhere, and and I'm hoping. And I've said this now for the last two years that Constantinople 1453 will be on the road at some point there. And I might even, you know, take it north of the Watford Gap if shows ever start again. Um, if I painted 80,000 figures for it and four foot of Byzantine walls, then frankly, it needs to be seen a few times. So I'll try and get it on the road a bit and try and get people playing that. So do please come along and say hello. And, um, you know, uh, you might even possibly recognise me at some point, although I'll try and be in disguise deliberately. <laughs> uh, with 80,000 troops I think you can conquer the north no problem whatsoever yeah but you know, they are in two mils so you'll struggle to see them you know <laughs> e- even so the <laughs> Spain school should look should look pretty good anyway yeah. so hopefully we'll actually get that we'll actually see the light of day at some point there yeah uh, and otherwise um, I'll, I'll, I'll enthusiastically support WSS magazine although there's lots of other good ones out there 
And if you do want to start writing more six mil things, or three or two mil or ten mil or whatever, some of the smaller scales out there, it'd be great to have some articles that covered those. And I'm sure we'd love them in our magazines. But equally, you know, please get them along to the other magazines as well, because, you know, I think the more attention that they get and uh, the more quality articles we get with good photographs, then actually, you know, the more we can sell this wonderful scale, which offers so much, you know, and such a different way of wargaming than 28 mil figures and uh, the, the, uh, the hobby standard, I suppose, for a lot of people and maybe get some thinking in a slightly different way about how much fun war games can be in different scales. So the, the challenge is out there, folks, um, and it's been laid down. The gauntlet is thrown down. Get those photography skills up and get typing away on these articles. Uh, you're pretty um, uh, visible on Twitter as well. Oh, yeah, I am. Yeah, but I'm on Twitter. I think I'm. Well, I need to check my own Twitter now, don't I? That's terrible, <laughs> isn't it? Okay. Uh, what am I? I'm I'm at Mark Backhouse 29. There we go. There we go. And so I tend to post up all kinds of silly pictures on there and talk about anything that's going on, really. So um, yeah, please by all means and have a follow or um, just come and peruse through the picture library there and, and see. You can see some of the photographs of uh, the Constantinople project and some of these other two mil things there as well, which are hopefully a nice bit of eye candy for some of you. And also on Facebook, I'm quite often on the, um, there's a two mil wargaming uh, thing on Facebook as well, which I, I tend to be on quite a bit as well. And there's lots of really exciting, innovative ideas on there about how to um, recreate things in two mil and trick people into thinking that they're, they're lots of beautifully painted figures when in actual fact they're little tiny bits of Velcro or something like that. There, you know. yes. I'll check that out. I wasn't aware of the Facebook group, so uh, I'll have a look. Yeah, at no, it's, it's a good one. In fact, it's run by your mate who um, did the twilight of the... Um, Sun King, I'm saying. Uh, Sun King Divine. Nick, yeah. Nick, yeah. Is it Nick? Nick Durrell. Nick Durrell, yeah, so Nick yes. Durrell's one of the, 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 the big cheeses behind it there. So, um, yeah, have a look at that, please do. Come sure. and join us. that plug. Uh, mate, again, thanks very much for your time. And uh, the, the one the one um, plea I make out to any guest that comes on is that you'll agree to come on again at some point in the future. So maybe once Constant- Constantinople is out in the wild. Yeah. Uh, we can have a chat about that, but yeah. hopefully, hopefully we'll cross everything we can to say that the world might be back to some sort of normal by the middle of next year. Uh, oh, I hope so. In, in time for parties. I don't, I don't want to do a remote version of it, not with, uh, not with my, uh, my internet connection today. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> you and me both, mate. You and me both. But uh, mate, thanks very much for your time. It's been great. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Sean. Thanks for having me on. Good Look forward there. to seeing you again. No worries, mate. Oh, welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that. Um, I've had some incredible technical issues um, this episode. Uh, it's now quarter past two in the morning, but your faithful podcast host has managed, I think, to pull the cat out of the bag and get this episode sorted. Um, I'll leave the update on my own hobby news for now and talk about it next time uh, when I'll be speaking to John, a.k.a. Willwind, from the Heretical Gaming blog 
which hopefully should be up in uh, about a week to 10 days time. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Mark. Really interesting conversation there, especially around his approach to his two mil projects with the Siege of Portsmouth and the upcoming Constantinople game, which, as I said at the start of the show, hopefully, once the world starts to return to normal next year, we may get to see at a couple of shows, who knows. So, I'll close out the show saying thanks very much for listening. Thank you for your support. All of the emails and the comments that I get just help me and spur me on to get the next episode out. It's a great community that we're part of, and I'm proud to be a small piece of that with the God's Own Scale podcast. So as ever, stay safe, play nice, and keep talking about six. Brother Bertie went away to do his bit the other day. With the smile on his lips and his left hand and fixed upon his shoulder, right and gay. As the train moved out, he said, Remember me to all the birds. Then he wagged his paw and went away to war, shouting out these pathetic words. Goodbye, goodbye. Oh, I'm a dear baby, dear from your eye. Though it's hard to pass, I know, I know. I'll be because the death is all so bright. Don't die. There's a silver lining in the sky. Oh,